Hi everybody and welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd and I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Professor Mamas Mamas. Mamas is a social media legend and an interventional cardiologist and also a researcher of big data. And in this podcast we discuss all kinds of things including his radial first hashtag on Twitter that's managed to change practice in the UK and beyond his use of electronic healthcare records for making new discoveries and drawing up new guidelines and risk scores in things like TAVA and QRISC. And also we get into the power of social media and how social media can be a great force for good amongst cardiologists and all doctors. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Mamas, could you start off by telling the the podcast audience what you get up to, both clinically and research-wise? So I'm a clinical cardiologist. I spend my time um, as a coronary interventionalist doing PCIs. I've started moving into the structural space, so I've started doing tabbies, and I've also started training in coronary CT. I'm an academic, as you know, and 50% of my time is spent doing research, and my main research focuses are around big data, so looking at using routinely collected healthcare records for patients with cardiovascular disease and using it to inform how we treat these patients, um, their outcomes, and so forth. And finally, you know, I'm increasingly using social media, which may come as a surprise to some people or not a surprise to others, um, which I think you know, is a very exciting space to be within. Absolutely. And hopefully we can address all three of those areas during our conversation. But perhaps we could start with your with your research life, as it were, in terms yes. of big data. There are various definitions of big data out there, but what's the definition that you tend to use when you're explaining what you do? I mean, I guess, you know, big, I mean, the, the best quote around big data is um, that, that someone's used is when they described it as being similar to teenage sex. Everyone talks about it, um, but not very many people um, <laughs> you know, do it. Um, and I guess you know, big data is very much the same thing. You know, people talk about big data when really they mean epidemiology or just you know, using standard epidemiological data sets. I mean, my interests are around uh, data derived from electronic healthcare records. But of course, big data can be from anything. It could be from images. It could be, um, you know, text mining from other sources. It could be um, from social media, from the internet. Um, so the thing that my group works around are data derived from electronic healthcare records, and these span um, the environments um, through which that we see patients. So it could be anything from primary care through to secondary care, or very specialist. Um, tertiary care settings and it could be local registries or mainly these days national international uh, registries of tens of millions of patients even hundreds of millions of patients in some cases and you've written some nice articles about this and sort of both pros and the cons and some of the things we should look out for when we're analyzing big data but perhaps we can start off by talking about you distinguish the national and international databases, but we also all in our hospitals these days have electronic healthcare records. Yes. Is, is most of your work derived from, would you say, NICOR and national databases, or are you also interested in the individual hospital electronic healthcare record like Cernor or Epic or whichever flavor you tend to have these days? I would say most of my group's work 
is focused mainly around national international data sets. I think you know big data is useful in that it is additive to the information that's provided by randomized controlled trials. So we know that in randomized trials, many populations aren't included in these trials. And so looking at you know, temporal trends, outcomes in these patients, complications from procedures that we deliver to these populations, you know, often randomized controlled trials exclude the population that has these complications or the complications may not be so rare that we can't really get a lot of information from randomized trials. And I think using national data provides a lot of useful information in this. I think the ability to look at populations that aren't included in randomized trials. So we've done a lot of work in the cancer space, for example, you know, one of the main exclusion criteria for many of the trials or registries that are undertaken is, you know, history of cancer or current cancer. And yet, you know, we're commonly faced with these sorts of patients. And so understanding, you know, their treatment outcomes, their complications, how commonly we encounter these patients, I think, you know, it's really important. And then, you know, other areas. So as cardiologists, you know, we often think of comorbidity or frailty as, you know, cardiovascular risk factors. But of course, comorbidity is a much more broader spectrum of conditions. And, you know, we're, we're dealing with an increasingly elderly population. And so looking at how things like comorbidity can impact on the treatments of the patients receive their outcomes is important. And I think the final area, which I think is quite relevant and something that my, my group's quite interested in is, you know, benchmarking ourselves. I mean, we all, you know, like to do things, we, we offer services which we feel are in the best interests of the patients. But, you know, we, we need to sort of be more circumspect and think about, you know, how, you know, how, how effective are these treatments? Are we effective in delivering these treatments? And the way to assess that is through risk scores. And so, you know, increasingly we're using national data in developing risk scores to look at outcomes in patients. And you've done uh, superb examples of that, both in the movement towards radial access for uh, coronary procedures and also uh, risk scoring around TAVIs or TAVAs, uh, as people call it in the rest of the world, MAMAS. Um, yes. Would you want to talk a little bit about each of those and, and what the sort of driver for those questions was and how you went about it in the very broadest terms uh, of coming up with those two two ideas? Yeah, sure. So in terms of radial, um, we know that in PCI, one of the commonest complications is major bleeding complications. And around half of all major bleeding complications have historically come from the access side. And, you know, uh, people like Ferdinand Kimaday, Lucien Campo, um, you know, were real innovators in this space, doing PCI procedures through um, the transradial approach and, you know, a, a large body of communities. So in the UK, people like Jim Nolan, you know, Olivier Bertrand in Canada, you know, these very early adopters, you know, felt that this was definitely the way forwards and you know, developed educational programs in trying to increase the adoption of this. Obviously, when one tries to increase the adoption of a particular technique or a particular therapy, then you need evidence. And the evidence has come twofold. Um, firstly, from randomized controlled trials, and there have been you know, a number of landmark uh, randomized controlled trials from colleagues um, like Sanjeev Jolly and Marco Migliani and so forth. Um, and then, you know, looking at experience of changes in access site practice in national systems, 
that have undergone a change. The United Kingdom, of course, is one of these healthcare systems where use of radial access was maybe 10% in 2016, 2006, and I think the latest figures are 85% um, most recently. And looking at the impact of the adoption of radial access and that how this has impacted on major bleeding complications in the UK, looking at uh, mortality, looking at um, whether radial adoption has particular benefit in particular groups of patients, um, looking at whether switching to radial has compromised femoral outcomes, looking at the health economic impact of switching to a radial approach. And so you can do this sort of work by using national data, so BSIS registry data that captures every PCI undertaken in the United Kingdom is fairly granular about the procedure and fairly granular about outcomes as well. So I think this has been, you know, really an invaluable source of information, particularly for countries that perhaps are um, behind the radial learning curve. So the United States, for example, Germany, another example, where you know, they're having the same sort of discussions as perhaps we had you know, a decade ago. And evidence you know, from the UK, as well as from other countries that have published this sort of literature, is used by these countries to drive the agenda. And I think that's important. I think in terms of risk stratification you know, in TAVA, I think that's important in that you, know, you have a new procedure. And initially, risk scores that were used were surgical risk scores. So, you know, logistic your score, STS score that were developed in patients undergoing cardiac surgery. And you know, our work and other people's work suggested that actually these scores are marginally better than flipping a coin for prediction of outcomes. And so, you know, when you're trying to treat patients, you know, a key part of treatment is the consent procedure. And if you're not able to tell the patient, you know, what, what the risks are from the procedure and be able to calculate the risks, then I don't feel that you're consenting them properly. And so then, of course, you know, you think, well, OK, surgical scores aren't great. Should we be using another risk score? So we looked at um, other risk scores from the United States, from Germany, from France, for TAVAs, and looked at their performance in the UK population. And of course, they didn't perform very well. And so Glenn Martin, one of my old PhD students, um, led the work in developing development of a UK-specific TAVI risk score that people use these days in the United Kingdom. And that was you. That was derived from healthcare data, electronic data, from presumably from NICOR and elsewhere. Yes. So um, the risk score was derived from uh, the UK TAVI data set. So the UK TAVI data set collects information around. Um, individuals' characteristics, you know, age, gender, comorbidities, past medical history, but also uh, collects information around TAVI-related factors, um, as well as outcomes. And so, and it captures every TAVI undertaken in the United Kingdom. And so then you can use this information to develop a risk model. Um, of course, you know, you, you can only develop a risk model out of information that you capture so I think it's very good that we captured frailty, but perhaps less good that we didn't capture factors such as comorbidity, so Charlson's score, Ellickshauser's score, and so forth. So again, that's one of the, you know, the beauties of some of the work that you can do with routinely collected data, particularly if you use a wide source of data in that, you know, in randomized trials or dedicated registries, you only collect the data that you think is useful at the time, but then when you come to analyze it, you think, oh, 
well, you should have collected cancer, or you should have collected frailty. Whereas, you know, using routinely collected healthcare records and linking across different types of records, you don't need that. You can then, you know, access more holistically information around the whole individual's you know, healthcare environment rather than just the things that you thought of at the time that would be good to collect. I mean, it's certainly a, a compelling case and others have also uh, doing great work in this area, Harry Hemingway and colleagues, of course. Um, but you also wrote recently in uh, Cardiovascular Research, one of the EHJ journals, about the the challenges, I guess, that one has with electronic healthcare record data and linkage, things like missing data, uh, incomplete data, coding problems. Can you talk a little bit about that? You've, we've talked a lot about how it can be superbly useful, but w- what are some of the challenges we need to be aware of? I guess there's several challenges there, sort of, I like to sort of split them up into two parts. The first part is challenges with the data itself. And secondly, you know, challenges with how you analyze the data and who should analyze the data. Um, so in terms of you know, the data itself, of course, you know, there is always missing data. I, you know, people not putting in whether someone's diabetic, for example, now you could say, you know, they've not put it in because they're not diabetic or that they are diabetic and someone's forgotten to put it in. So that's a challenge. But it's also a challenge with regards to the patterns of how the data is missing. And what I mean by that is, is it entirely a a completely random process? Hmm. Or is there a systematic form of bias? So for example, I'm an interventional cardiologist, so going in the cath lab, if you have an out-of-hospital arrest or an emergency case, you know, your, your, your missingness may be much greater than a staged elective case where you have that information available. Um, and so when you're developing risk scores that, you know, you may have information from the highest risk cases which drive your outcome that you're trying to predict. And so that can be quite challenging from a statistical perspective. I also think that it's challenging in terms of definitions. I mean, you know, there's obvious things like, you know, is some, how old is someone? Well, that's obvious, you know, that you can't misinterpret that. But, you know, other things are less clear. So, for example, you know, if it's a drop-down menu of frailty, well, what do you mean by frailty? Do you mean that they can't brush their hair? Can they not walk? Or bleeding, you know, what do we mean by a bleed? Because there's lots of definitions of bleeding. You know, would a nosebleed be the same as a major hemorrhage of the patient exsanguinating. Um, we often think of data in terms of, you know, binary data, so categorical data, yes or no, you know, are they diabetic, yes or no, whereas, you know, in clinical practice, we all know that patients with diabetes can have different severity, you know, from a newly diagnosed diabetic to someone with, you know, horrible triple vessel disease, you know, amputated leg, uh, diabetic retinopathy, whose HbA1c is completely out of control, and often data doesn't differentiate between those. So I think, you know, there's a lot more in terms of granularity, and some of the granularity you can, you know, you can you can get over that by combining data sets. Of course, there are, there are no checks, so, you know, people entering the data, you know, there's often no validation of many of the data sets that we use, you know, so no one's validated whether or even by random sampling whether data is correct or not. I think in terms of analysis, you know, nowadays data is becoming more and more available. So there are a number of data sets that we use um, from different healthcare systems that can be purchased and they can be purchased 
from student licenses from a couple of hundred dollars in the US case, which basically means that anyone can have access to this data. And, you know, you don't, there's not really, you know, there's no way often of validating how someone has analyzed the data so that you know, people don't publish protocols, they don't share code, you know, so that sometimes it's difficult to replicate analyses. And, you know, sometimes it's not even a, an agreed method by which you should analyze the data, you know, whether you impute, whether you exclude cases with missing data. Um, and people produce risk scores. I mean, you can't, you know, go to a journal without seeing the risk score every other journal. Mm. And, you know, a lot of regulatory bodies are now saying that risk scores should be considered as medical devices. And I, you know, I, I have a, I sort of agree with that in that, you know, you can have someone that perhaps doesn't have a robust statistical training deriving a risk score using inappropriate methodology that perhaps hasn't been picked up at the review process. And then suddenly this risk score is used in clinical practice without it ever having been validated externally and without even knowing whether appropriate methodology was used. And I think that's, you know, what, you know, the, 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 the real, there is a real danger of false discovery um, using big data. Mm. Yeah, particularly when you're going to use machine learning as well and perhaps some unsupervised methods. Um, yes. I've seen great concerns about that. But uh, but let's finish on a more positive note, Mamas. Yes. You've recently been appointed uh, by the European Society of Cardiology as a social media uh, ambassador, particularly focusing, I think, on Twitter, where you have a, uh, a fantastic Twitter feed that I'll put a link in the show notes to. Can you talk a little bit about that, about why you love Twitter so much and why you think doctors, you know, ought to be on Twitter? Um, obviously not all the time, but should have a presence at least on social media. Yeah, I mean, I think social media has completely changed our professional um, life. I think social media is absolutely amazing. It's completely changed the way that I practice. I think social media... Um, is fantastic for education, um, first and foremost. You know, there, there's so many cases or discussions that are placed on Twitter that I learn so much from. And often, you know, in the past, I mean, if you think about our educational activities, on the whole, you'd go to one or two conferences a year, and most of the time they'd happen within the department. So, you know, five, 10 people, you know, your colleagues have a big hospitals, maybe 20 people that you could have perhaps have a meeting once a month with, you know, maybe an afternoon where you all present interesting cases. Um, you would maybe read a few journals and maybe turn up to your annual conference once a year, whereas Twitter has completely changed that. You know, there's discussions 24-7. And the beauty of Twitter is that this is global. You know, so it's not just a couple of physicians that you're friends with in your department. You know, these are physicians from all over the planet. You know, so it's completely leveled the playing field um, that everyone has a voice, an equal voice, and you see cases and exposure to cases that you would never see otherwise. So, for example, you know, in the past when I did PCI cases and I had an interesting case and I wanted to discuss with someone you know, strategies and you know ideas around that case, I could maybe speak to the guy in the lab next door, maybe show to a few of the SPRs. Whereas now, I you know I place it on Twitter, and ten you know there's. Ten, Hundreds of people interacting, discussing, you know, people are putting links to data, to evidence, and it's a fantastic um, learning opportunity. I think um, in terms of collaboration, so I've been very fortunate in that I've met some absolutely fantastic collaborators on Twitter, so research collaborators, so people that 
I've worked with. I'm not going to name them all because I don't want to <laughs> have to defend them. Oh, why didn't you name me? Um, but they know who they are. And people know, you know, when they look at the papers, you know, that a lot of the people that I work with are on Twitter. Um, and, you know, it's completely changed the quality of our work and completely changed, you know, some of the questions that we ask even and opened up new opportunities, you know, identified new data, identified collaborations. You know, I've visited a number of people, centres, you know, people have contacted me through Twitter. You know, young students have contacted me through Twitter, come and spend time with us at our centre, you know, have published with my group now. Um, I think, you know, just there's been changes in practice. So, for example, um, radial first, the radial first tag, changing how we practice interventional cardiology. I think, you know, raising awareness of the women in cardiology practice, you know, raising mm. awareness of inequalities and challenges that many of the women face in, you know, in our profession um, or even, you know, trying to join our subspeciality. And it's a real eye-opener to many of us on social media. And I think social media has become a very powerful tool for not only raising these inequalities, but for addressing these inequalities. So, you know, so um, Roxana Miran, you know, through social media has developed the Women as One tag. You know, she's now developed a database where people can enter, you know, who they are, where they're from, um, important information about their skill set, their background. And so then organisers of meetings can go to this you know, great um, database through Roxana and her team and, you know, find speakers rather than going to the same, you know, the same old guys or same old candidates. So, you know, I, I think social media has been a real, real tool for good. And I think at conferences as well, you know, often in conferences, when you go to conferences, it's very difficult to um, be able to see you know, what's going on. Sometimes you can't even go to the conference or you might be in a different session. But often the discussions around things that are presented at a conference are absolutely amazing in that, you know, if you go to a late-breaking trial session, you might have, you know, the, the panellists ask one or two questions and that's it. Whereas on Twitter, you know, the discussions can go for months thereafter, like Orbiter and some of the other landmark trials. And again, you really learn so much from reading these threads yeah, no, I com I completely agree. I mean, you uh, you you put it very well. Uh, I I've met loads of research collaborators through Twitter. I've I've had PhD students approach me and uh, through Twitter and uh, the online learning, as you say, uh, people like Venk Murphy and uh, some statisticians that often weigh in there um, with tutorials about things that I had no idea and now I understand much better. It's uh, it's my mission to persuade uh, the few remaining people in my department to join Twitter that aren't already on. But uh, there are some holdouts, and I'm sure there are with you as well. Yes, I know. It's just, it's just weird. I mean, people, I, mean I, I must admit, I was sort of a bit of a holdout at first. So, I mean, I only got through um, through Sunil Rao, in fact. So he was the guy that mm. um, is a, friend, a very good friend of mine and an editor of um, Circulation Intervention. Sunil was um, developing the radial first hashtag. And so, you know, I used to see him at conference and, you know, he said to me, look, you know, we're going to do this radial first thing on Twitter. It's going to be great. We're going to try to really push the adoption of radial. You know, we'd like you to join Twitter. Nice thing. Ah, oh, you know, I can't be bothered. You know, social media for teenagers, whatever. And suddenly he used to just keep on and on and on at me. I thought, right, I'm going to join it. And, it, you know, it's completely, I'm, I've completely changed my view, as you'd imagine, 360 degrees. And, I, I you know, I've, I've 
got quite a few of my colleagues to join it who had similar conversations like mm. I had Sun Hill. And now, again, you know, like Jim Nolan, Vas Vasilio, you know, other people mm. in the UK, um, that, again, now are completely, you know, again, have done a 360. And they're trying to persuade other colleagues. And I think, you know, the social media space is one where I think it's increasingly difficult to remain relevant and be up to date mm. as a cardiologist if you're not on it personally. No, I agree. And I get almost all of my you know, information about new papers published uh, through Twitter. Um, yeah, it's, it's, fan it's fantastic. And of course, podcasting, uh, talking about uh, social media and other channels, I think is also growing within cardiology and medicine, which is fantastic. But uh, I want to thank you very much indeed, Mamas, for your time. It's been uh, very informative and educational. And I'll put links to the things that we've discussed in the show notes. And uh, where can people best find you? Is What's your Twitter handle? Um, at mmamas1973 but if you look out at the local airport you might see me there as well <laughs> you're a big fan of airport selfies aren't you yes <laughs> or singing karaoke even yes brilliant well thanks very much for joining us mamas it's been a pleasure thank you